Thank you. It's, um, it's really kind of overwhelming, actually, to try to process uh, your love and your generosity. Um, I was telling somebody here just this morning, uh, we've always wanted to go to Israel. I've always wanted to go to Israel. Never really thought that that would ever come to pass, at least until the millennium that I figured I'd have a thousand years, I'd be able to make my way to, to Jerusalem at that time. But um, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed with your love, your generosity. Um, the other Sunday night when we had the anniversary and uh, the mayor talked about the church and, and how much they love their pastor and all that, and I was sitting there just thinking, man, you, don't, you have no idea about a church and how it can love its pastor until you've been part of this church. So God bless you. Thank you. Uh, we will carry you in our hearts uh, through Great Britain and, and into Israel. And, and they're just trusting when we come back uh, that our time in Israel uh, will greatly enrich the preaching of the word. And that I will, that God will give me the grace to be able to as we unfold the scriptures together, to share with you uh, that not what I've just read about, which is the way it's been until now, but that which will I have actually seen with my own eyes. So um, to God be the glory in all of it. The, um, the war in Iraq went on for 10 years or so. It generated uh, a number of really amazing uh, photographs. I'm sure you've seen some of, the, some of the photographs, the embedded reporters who traveled with the, with the Marines and Army and, and Navy and Airmen uh, were able to capture on film some, some pictures that were just absolutely incredible. But of the, the many photos that I have seen, uh, I don't think any are more poignant than this one here. This is the picture of a United States Marine being baptized in a, in a makeshift baptismal pool created out of sandbags lined with a tarp and filled with water out of 10-gallon cans in the middle of the desert north of Kuwait City in 2003. It's an amazing, amazing picture. The Lord Jesus Christ left two ordinances with his church. Two symbolic activities that vividly display his death, burial, and resurrection and future coming that the people of God might be reminded on a regular basis of what their Savior has accomplished for them. Those two symbolic activities, of course, are communion and baptism. Baptism. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 28. Read along with me. Beginning in verse 18. Matthew 
chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. Man, do I love the sound of turning pages. Nice. Verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, that is, to his disciples gathered there, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know it as the Great Commission, right? These are our marching orders. As the the disciples taught all that Jesus had taught them through their written word, which has come down to us, we have received that teaching, and with that teaching comes this commission. It has been passed on from generation to generation, believer to believer, and it is every bit ours as it was theirs. The main verb of this particular section appears in verse 19 where Jesus says, make disciples. Make disciples. It is the main verb. It is the controlling activity of this whole section. It is an imperative That is, it is a command. It is not an option. It is not a suggestion. It is not a good idea. It is not a tip. It is a command. And it is a command who comes from one in verse 18 who says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The supreme, resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he said, God the Father has given to me this authority and this authority extends to all realms of the creation and I am telling you, make disciples. Make disciples. How? He gives it to us right here. He gives it to us in the two participles, the two ing words of verses 19 and 20, baptizing, verse 19, teaching, verse 20. They are the means to bring about the fulfillment of the command to make disciples. They receive their imperatival force, their command activity from the main verb itself. How do we make disciples? Baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. They are the means. Christ, in all his authority, has designated to be the means of disciple making. The means of disciple making. To make someone a disciple is to bring them into a relationship 
with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship of a pupil to a teacher. A pupil to a teacher. The disciple is the pupil. Christ is the teacher. And what that means, uh, coming into that pupil-teacher relationship, is that the disciple accepts what Jesus says is true because Jesus has said it. The disciple submits to what Jesus requires because Jesus has said it. All of our thinking, all of our activities, all of our understandings of reality, all Come back to Him. Come back to Him. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to know and do the will of God as revealed in sacred Scripture. This is what it means. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. It is to know and it is to do the will of God revealed through the Son of God, our Savior. Now, how does that relate to baptism? Well, it relates like this. Baptism has, in the evangelical church, fallen upon hard times. It has fallen upon hard times. There are a growing number of people who claim a personal faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they have never been baptized. Never baptized. Never taken the the first step of obedience as laid out here in Jesus' formula for disciple-making. And beloved, the the failure to follow Christ at the very beginning of our Christian life will bear bad consequences throughout our life. We cannot be a disciple any way we want to. To be a disciple is to follow Christ. To rebel against His commands is to invite disastrous consequences. This is a serious issue. One author speaking on baptism puts it this way. He writes, the person who is unwilling to be baptized is at best a disobedient believer. And if a person persists in his unwillingness, there is reason to doubt the genuineness of of his faith. If you are unwilling to comply with this simple act of obedience in the presence of believers, how will you be willing to stand for Christ in an unbelieving world? Those are good questions. Those are those are fair questions. 
Those are penetrating questions. Now, it may be in your minds there, are, there is a certain amount of confusion regarding the topic of baptism. That's certainly possible. And so part of what I want to do this morning is to clear up any confusion that might exist. So I've structured the the sermon this morning around a a series of questions and answers. Questions and answers. And so this morning what I want to do is, is to ask and answer eight key questions. Eight key questions concerning the topic of baptism in order to clear up the ambiguity surrounding this critical demonstration of Christian discipleship. Now, because there are eight questions involved, then necessarily we're not going to be able to exhaust each and every question. There is more that could be said, perhaps even a sermon in every question. But we will try to get to the heart of the issue as we work through the questions together, okay? So let's begin simply with this. What is baptism? What is baptism? What does the word mean? Let's just begin with that. What does the word baptize or baptism mean? It's actually a, a Greek word that has been transliterated rather than translated. What that means is that the word came to us in the English exactly the way it is written and spelled in the Greek. They merely substituted English letters for Greek letters. So it is not a translated word. It is a Greek word. And it comes over directly. Baptizo is the Greek verb. B-A-P-T-I-Z-O is the Greek verb. And it means to dip. To dip. To dip repeatedly. To die, D-Y-E. To immerse, to plunge, to sink, to drench, to soak, to wash. And finally, it is used to speak of being overwhelmed with trouble. So you can kind of understand the semantic range of this word. It all has to do with being Put down under water, typically. It is used in, the verb is used in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 16 and verse 24, to speak of dipping the tip of a finger into the water. It's used in John chapter 13 and verse 26 to dip a piece of bread in gravy. It's used in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 13 to dye, D-Y-E, a garment in blood. So you can see, as it is being used, it is all about sticking it into the fluid. The noun, baptismos, B-A-P-T-I-S-M-O-S, baptismos, refers to washing or dipping, and it's used in Mark chapter 7 and verse 4 of, of washing your hands and washing the hands and dishes. It's used in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 2 of ceremonial washings. 
So you can see how the word is commonly used in the Greek of the New Testament. Lexically speaking, baptize never means to sprinkle or to pour. Never. It does not mean sprinkle. It does not mean pour. It means immerse, drown, dip, submerge. Furthermore, water is never said to be baptized upon something. You baptize in water. You don't baptize water onto something. This is what the word means. And this is the word that was brought over in the translation of the English Bible directly from the Greek. Now, there are a number of places that's used throughout the the New Testament which clearly baptismal scenarios or scenes and which clearly there is no sprinkling and there is no pouring. For example, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. Speaking of the ministry of John the baptizer, Matthew chapter 3 verse 6, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Okay, why the Jordan River? Because they needed a quantity of water. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. He was in the river. John chapter 3 and verse 23, where it says, Now John, that is John the baptizer, also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there. Why was he conducting his baptizing ministry there? Answer, because there was a lot of water there. And why did he need a lot of water? Because he had a lot of people he had to stick under it. Okay? So what is baptism? Answer, it is to be plunged under water. To be plunged under water. Second question. What is the theological reality it portrays? What is the theological reality that this symbol portrays? Answer, baptism symbolically portrays a believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And no better picture could be painted. It is a picture, it is a symbol of our faith union with Jesus Christ that comes at the moment of redemption in which we are spiritually united with him in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection to newness of life. One author says it this way, This is expressed symbolically in the descent into the water and immersion beneath its surface. The grave has received the self and closed over it. The self is dead and buried. Then the watery grave opens and out comes a new man, no longer the old with his inclination towards sin, but one inwardly opposed to sin and turned to the grace of God in Christ." 
in principle, walking in newness of life. It's a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of the spiritual reality of conversion. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 6, and drawing upon this symbol and this theological reality, writes the following, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that the grace so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He's saying that all of us who have been immersed into Christ have been immersed into the death of Christ. And Paul is speaking here not about water. This is a dry verse. He is speaking about the spiritual reality. Therefore, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It is the perfect symbol of an amazingly profound theological reality, spiritual reality, our union with Jesus Christ. Third question. Third question. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Is baptism necessary? necessary for salvation. Now, depending why someone asked this question, I I might give two different answers. If someone were asking the question because they were trying to figure out what is the the least I have to, to do in order to be saved, I'd probably answer it one way. But I'm not going to assume the minimalist approach. I'm going to to assume uh, a different approach, and that is that someone is confused and thinks that, that there is some activity one must perform in order to be saved, some ritual one must go through in order to be saved. If that's the source of the question, must I partake in this ritual in order to be saved, then the answer is no. The answer is no. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having been justified, how? By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Chapter 5 and verse 1 of Romans follows immediately on the heels of chapter 4 of Romans, where Paul lays out justification by grace through faith alone, demonstrated in the life of Abraham and David. So is it necessary in a ritual sense? No. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one should 
boast. Okay? Human effort it has no place in the salvation of God. Salvation is always and only and exclusively of the Lord. He saves. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. I bring that verse to you because I want you to not miss the reality that it is disbelief, not the failure to be baptized, that is spoken of as the reason of condemnation. Condemnation comes for one who refuses God's revelation in Jesus Christ. But I do not want you to miss the close connection between belief and baptism that is spelled out there. Is baptism necessary? No. Yes, and you'll see soon enough. Who should be baptized? Fourth question. Who should be baptized? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is to to see the, the precedent that has been given to us in the early church. And then we can do that, and we can do that inerrantly because the Spirit of God has recorded for us the pages of Holy Scripture in the book of Acts the first 30 years of the church following its inception at Pentecost. And so we are going to trace that through here, and we're going to have to move quickly, granted. But we will not spend a lot of time speaking about each and every passage, or at least hopefully not. But along the way, I think the case will become overwhelming. So I want to turn you first to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost to a large crowd of Jews drawn from all over the Roman Empire. And Peter preaches a very powerful sermon here in Acts chapter 2 in which he demonstrates that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah. The one whom they have most recently been responsible for his death. The one for whom the crowds called out, Give us Barabbas, crucify him, away with him. We have no king but Caesar. We want nothing to do with him. And then Peter, speaking about the resurrection of Christ and and bringing the scriptures to bear, ends in verse 36, he says, Therefore... End of his sermon here. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart. They killed their own Messiah. What hope could they have? What hope could be left? 
and to Peter and the rest of the apostles. They said, brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Is there only judgment left for us? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What shall we do? Be baptized in the name of Jesus, Messiah. Turn away from this evil generation who called for his crucifixion and now publicly identify with him. Declare your your allegiance to him. Not a secret allegiance, a public allegiance. Stand up, speak up in the middle of the crowds who once called for his death just a short time before. And declare that you're on his side. Baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just quickly show you something over there. What does it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Because that formula is used several times. In the name of. It it is a way to to declare your allegiance to. It is a declaration of allegiance. And I'll show this to you because in in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church that is severely divided. It has conflicting loyalties. People are saying, hey, I'm of one group, I'm of another group, and so forth. Right? Verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. And Paul says, has Christ been divided? Question, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you see that? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, you were not. Because if you were, then your allegiance would be to Paul. And and his argument here is that you were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Your allegiance is to Christ, not to a man. So back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter says to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, what he is saying to these people is, you must make an open and public declaration in the face of overwhelming hostility to Jesus as Messiah. And you will do it through baptism. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 8. Acts 8. The gospel finally gets out of Jerusalem. It's finally moving out. Persecution moves it. And it heads to Samaria. And when it goes to Samaria, there, there is a response from among the Samaritans. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip's, 
When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. Men and women alike. They believed. They were baptized. They believed. They were baptized. Further on in the same chapter, verse 35. Philip, after that successful ministry in Samaria, is snatched by the Spirit of God. He's sent out into the hinderlands where he has a divine appointment with an Ethiopian eunuch, a, a royal official who had been up to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel and was now heading back to Africa with his caravan. And, and uh, the Spirit says to Peter, run on up. And so he runs, on, he runs on up and the eunuch says, hey, come on up here. i got some questions. Just what I was looking for, the Bible answer man. Come on. Verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? He's reading Isaiah 53, of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, Water, what prevents me from being baptized? Question. Drop down to verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. How did Philip know about being baptized, do you think? I mean, excuse me, the eunuch. How did the eunuch know to be baptized? I suspect because Philip told him. Right? How did Philip know to tell him that? Well, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. Philip is just doing what had been told to them to do. So the eunuch, when he believes, what's his first question? Can I be baptized? And Philip says, yeah, there, actually there's some water right here. Pull this thing over. Pull it over. They go down into the water together. They come up out of the water. Belief, baptism. Acts chapter 10. No, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Paul is on his way to Damascus. Got murder in his eyes. He's trying to, to, to kill, capture, and, and kill the, the people that he assumes to be dis, disloyal to and blasphemous toward the religion of Israel, the followers of Jesus Christ. And he has a divine appointment with the risen Lord. You know the account. And he's rendered blind. After being blind for, for a little while, Ananias is, is sent to him and, and said, to, said, go to him and baptize him. Verse 18, he, he goes to speak to him. Brother Saul, verse 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes, that is Paul's eyes, something like scales, and he regained his sight. And Paul got up and was baptized. He got up and he was baptized. Immediately upon believing, he is baptized. Chapter 10. 
Philip is called to the, to the house of Cornelius, the centurion, right? Share the gospel. You know, he's finally kind of getting the idea that this goes to the Gentiles too. So he goes to Cornelius, and, he, and the, Cornelius has gathered his household here, and Peter is preaching to them. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Same M.O. They believe and they are baptized. And by the way, there are no babies in this account. Right? They believe, they speak in tongues, and they are baptized. Adults. Chapter 16. Verse 14. The gospel's moving out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's about to, it's about to jump continents and come to Europe. And so it does that. Verse 14, they, verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we, that is Paul and those with him, uh, went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of, of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She believes she's baptized. It also says her household is baptized with her. The inference of the text is that those in her household who believe are baptized with her. There are no children in this text. There are no infants unless one wants to assume that this unmarried woman, unmarried woman somehow has children. And you've got to import an awful lot into the text to assume that. Particularly when we continue with the narrative in verse chapter 18 and Verse 8, here Paul's now in Corinth, says Crispus, verse 8, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Notice the close association. They're believing, they're baptized. They're believing, they're baptized. Chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus, and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Bad translation. I think what they're really saying is we haven't heard whether the Spirit had been given or not, because the giving of the Spirit is the sign of the coming of the new covenant. What they're saying is, No, we hadn't heard that the new covenant had come. And he said to them, Then into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. 
John's was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of Messiah. And Peter said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. Glad I agree with him. Telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They believed in Jesus as Messiah, and they were then baptized in his name. Throughout the book of Acts, baptism is performed upon all, without exception, who have come to believe. All, without exception, who have come to believe. And faith is always the precondition for baptism. Baptism follows one's faith attachment to the resurrected Christ. That is the pattern of the book of Acts. It is also what is taught in the New Testament epistles, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. We won't go there again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. I won't go there again. And Galatians 3.27, and I'm not going there either. So, anyway, you can check them on your own. That's the pattern of the New Testament. Apart from the thief on the cross, there is no one in the New Testament who repented and believed in Jesus Christ without also becoming a baptized follower of his. Okay? Understood biblically, baptism does not merely point to a profession of faith. I'm convinced it is the profession of faith. I'm convinced that when Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, right? I think the profession that he is talking about is the profession that accompanies baptism. They are that tightly placed side by side. We need to move along. Question five. Where does infant baptism come from? Where does infant baptism come from? Well, simply, it comes like this. First off, it's nowhere either stated or implied or even referred to in the New Testament. So it does not come from the New Testament. The practice of infant baptism grew up originally because concerned parent, parents were concerned of the spiritual welfare of their children, particularly at a time when infant mortality rates were very, very high, two out of three. Tertullian, writing at the end of the second century, taught that baptism was a necessary part of salvation along with faith, but he actually preached against infant baptism. That's the second century. So you can see the close association in his mind, but he preached against infant baptism. So where did it come from? It finds its source in the combination of the state and the church under Constantine in the fourth century. That's when infant baptism gained its biggest boost. Its theological support came from Augustine, who wrote as follows in AD 390, and I quote, Precisely because they are laden with inherited guilt, they are to be baptized, thereby to become partakers of grace. Close the quote. Augustine stopped just short of saying that baptism provided salvation. He didn't say it, but he came right up to the edge. By the 5th century, 
infant baptismal regeneration, meaning that the baptism act itself actually regenerated the infant. And by, that, by the way, it was still by immersion in those days. The infant was immersed. It became the more general practice of the church. It became compulsory by an edict of Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. Sprinkling of infants upon the head became the custom in the Western church in the 1300s. The Eastern church still immerses infants to to this day. So they don't sprinkle, they immerse. Where did infant baptism come from? It came from the confusion of the mixture of church and state. By your physical birth, you came into the state, you became a citizen of the state. They couldn't figure out, since in their mind the state and the church were the same grouping, they couldn't figure that the difference, and so they got you into the church through this baptism. And then they reached backwards for the circumcision, the sign of a covenant, and they applied that to their baptism. But infant baptism did not and does not replace circumcision. I don't have time to go into, the, into this whole and lengthy discussion, but let me just tell you this. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. The discussion at the Jerusalem Council was, do the Gentiles need to be what? Circumcised to become part of the people of God. If there was ever a time in the New Testament to make it clear that baptism had replaced circumcision, it would have been simple at the Jerusalem Council for them to say, of course they don't need to be circumcised. All they need to be is baptized, sprinkled. That will take care of the problem. But in fact, there is no mention of it at all, no connections made, because there are none. There are none. Six. Is baptism optional? Is it optional? I think you probably already kind of know the answer to this. Number one, no, it's not optional because it's a command. Matthew 28, verse 19. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. It's assumed of Christians. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. It's a command. Secondly, it's an act of discipleship. It is an irrevocable confession of Christ as Lord. The call of Christ is not, is not just a call to a, to a personal, private redemption. It is a call to obedience that reveals itself in a public commitment to him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, deny yourself and follow me. Baptism is no more optional than discipleship is. In fact, they are they are. Intricately related to each other. Discipleship is the Christian life. It is not an optional second step. In the New Testament, an unbaptized follower of Jesus Christ would be a non sequitur. They couldn't conceive of it, they don't have a category for it. It wouldn't even be considered possible. And so there is no pastoral counseling given what to do with people who, who profess faith in Jesus Christ but will not be baptized. What do you do with them? They would say they're not followers of Jesus Christ. Why worry? Evangelize them. That's what you do. Seven. What is the relationship between baptism and worship? What is the relationship between baptism and worship? Acceptable worship is obedient worship. 
All right, if we come before God, we, we proclaim our affection for him, we proclaim our devotion to him, we, we praise him for his sovereignty, for his right to rule over us, and then we refuse his simple command that, that begins the process of the life of the disciple, then our worship is faulty. It is faulty. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, and do not do what I say? Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Ceremonies don't impress God at all. He is after the human heart. Eight, and finally, should I be rebaptized? Some people have this question, should I be rebaptized? The answer is, since regeneration is a work that is accomplished once and for all, and bapti- baptism symbolizes that work, then no, you should not be rebaptized. You should not be rebaptized. Now, if you were not truly regenerate at the time you were baptized, meaning you were not really a follower of Jesus Christ at the time you were baptized, then you weren't really baptized. All you had was a warm bath, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, which takes the dirt off. And so the answer there would be, yes, you should be not rebaptized, you should be baptized. But if you've been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, and you truly are a follower of Christ, but, but you have you have experienced a long period of spiritual dryness or drought in your life. Maybe you've, you've struggled and failed with a persistent sin pattern for a long period of time. And, and now, by the grace of God, you've, you've achieved a measure of deliverance from these things. Do you need to be rebaptized? The answer is no. No, you, sh- no, you should not be rebaptized. Parents, should I encourage my children to be baptized? Yes and no. Yes, because it is, a, it is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So that would be like asking, should I encourage my children to follow Christ? And what would the answer be? Of course. What kind of question is that? But it needs to be some wisdom. Children are very young, very malleable, very impressionable. They will do what mommy and daddy want them to do when they're young in order to please them. So if you've conceived of it and, and, and pushed them towards it, they will, they will comply with you without being truly regenerate, and then you may do them spiritual harm. So be wise. Take some time. Dialogue with them. Get to know and assess their spiritual condition. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? That's my question to you this morning. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... To take the penalty for your sin and to grant to you his resurrection life. You love God. You desire to serve him. You want your life to, to count for his glory. 
and yet you've never been baptized. What prevents you from being baptized? Beloved, there can only be one application to a sermon like this. I can't say, go home and think about it some more. Take your time. I need to call on you to repent and be baptized. Right now, this morning, the tank is full behind me. We have arranged with some counselors to be ready to speak with you and help you to express what it is that is on your heart. But we're ready to baptize you this morning. I'm going to pray in a minute here, and, and then the music team is going to come up. And uh, it, this uh, could be very interesting. Okay? Spirit of God blows where he wills. No man knows where he comes from and where he goes. This could get a little chaotic, or we could sing and go home. I'm not going to manipulate anybody. I'm not twisting anybody's arm. The Spirit of God is, is moving in your heart, then you need to respond. This thing could go on for an hour, too. So once the uh, music team comes up and starts to play, if you have children in the children's ministries, I'm going to ask you to get up and go get them. Okay, get up and go get your children, and then come back if you can, leave if you must. And we will begin to baptize. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that it doesn't soft sell what it means to follow Christ? And how could it when we reflect upon what Christ has done? And so our Father, now as we prepare to baptize those who want to make a public declaration of their commitment to Jesus Christ, their faith in Christ, I pray that you would enable us to do it with decency, all things, and in order I pray your spirit would move in the hearts of your people, even now. And if there's anyone sitting there, kind of on the edge of their seat, and not knowing whether to go or not, Father, may your spirit just confirm to their spirit what you would have for them to do. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I can have the counselors, please, you know who you are. Come and be ready. I believe the Spirit of God is going to bring a harvest.